Good afternoon. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. If you're new or visiting, my name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. We want to welcome you. Today we are gathered here to declare that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord. And while it is a special Sunday, you could say, really, that's what we want to declare every Sunday. And not just every Sunday, but every day, that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Today, we are taking a break from our series through the book of 2 Samuel. We are going to focus specifically on the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So if you could open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel account of Luke. Chapter 24, the last chapter, we're going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to read for us all the way to verse 12, and then we will pray, and then we'll get into it. Luke 24, starting in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words, and, rem- uh, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's bow together. Father, we come before you this afternoon. We come before your word. And as we read, God, we come before the risen Christ who is king of heaven and earth. We know that he is not dead, but he is alive, that he reigns even now. And God, I pray, Father, that you would help us to come to grips, come face to face with that reality. Lord, and if there are some people here who don't know Christ, I pray that they would meet him this afternoon because he is not in a grave somewhere far away. He is near. He is alive. And he is findable. So God, I pray that you would draw us to you, that you would exalt your son, And I pray that your spirit would use this time that he would work in our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever been fooled by somebody? Could have been something small, right? Like maybe they told a white lie or you had some kind of miscommunication. Maybe it was a surprise birthday, something nice like that, where they tricked you, they pranked you. Or maybe it was something a little bit bigger than that. Maybe someone that you trusted, someone that you thought you knew well, turned out to be something totally different. They had tricked you about who they were. Maybe someone you were in a relationship with, maybe they turned out to be a fraud. A few years back, a young woman named Anna Sorokin made the news. You might have heard the name before, but she was arrested for 
defrauding and basically lying to banks and hotels and other major financial institutions. She had pretended to be someone that she was not. In fact, she changed her name before people. She called herself Anna Selvi. She created this character. Now, Anna, the truth was she was born in Russia, she was raised in Germany, and she was living in New York. But what she did was, when she was in New York, she pretended that she was actually a wealthy German heiress, that she was someone who came from money, that she was a socialite. And what she did was she acted through persuasive deceptions and really convincing lies like she was one of them. And she broke into the exclusive social circles of New York's elite. But the truth was, she had no money. She was so good, though, at pretending to be a rich person that when the bills came, she would always pull this act where she would say, oh, you know, I forgot my wallet at home, or, you know, my credit cards are German, so they're getting declined. Can you cover me? I'll pay you back later. And this worked for years. Everyone knew she was rich. She acted rich. She spoke like she was rich. She even had some rich clothes. She got these luxurious items by cashing fake checks and uh, getting out the maximum amount and buying like nice clothes, designer stuff, so she could pull off her lies. So everyone believed. Everyone covered her until one day she took some of her friends, some of her, I guess, regular friends, on an all-expense-paid vacation to Morocco for just a few days. And when the bill came, she said, oh, you know what? I forgot my wallet back in New York. Passport. And anyway, I forgot my wallet. Can you cover it? I'll pay you back when we get home. And her friend Rachel said, okay, I can cover it as long as you pay me back. Because guess how much the bill was? $62,000. This was more than her friend made in a year. So she said, I need this money. Pay me back when we get home. She didn't pay her back. And then when she gets back to New York, of course, she has nowhere to live. So she's like, can I crash at your place for a little while? All of these things added up. All of these things made her friends suspicious. And you can guess what happened over time. When she never paid people back, when she always needed a place to stay, when she was tricking her friends into giving her $62,000 and not even caring about it at all, they started to get suspicious See, the thing is, some people can be so convincing. They can look the part. They can talk the talk. They can make us believe. But then there always comes a point where the reality of the situation becomes impossible to ignore. This isn't how it should be with a wealthy German heiress. If she really is who she said she was, she wouldn't beg to stay at your small apartment. She would actually have money sometimes. She wouldn't always forget her wallet. See, at some point, you have to open your eyes to the facts that are right in front of your face and admit it. You might have been fooled. This kind of fraud is apparently common, too, unfortunately. I saw there was a documentary about this guy who lied to people on a dating app, and he swindled all this money from random women that he was pretending to date. Uh, recently, I saw on the news that Elizabeth Holmes, you might know her, she was the woman who started Theranos, this startup, health startup that was supposed to revolutionize the healthcare industry, turned out to be totally fake. She raised billions of dollars, stole billions of dollars from people. She got uh, convicted of fraud just a few months ago. There was the fire Festival, if you remember that. The thing is, people lie all the time. And you know what? It's not just lying by itself. Sometimes it's almost like these people believe their own fabrications. 
And that's why they're so convincing. That's why we're so prone to believe them. Now, you might be saying, Jesse, what does this have to do with anything? What does it have to do with the passage? What does it have to do with Jesus? Well, consider the situation. Okay, look at it more objectively. Take a step back. Jesus, at around the age of 30 years old, Luke, 20, uh, Luke 3, 23, burst onto the scene in first century Israel. No one had ever spoken like him, John 7, 46. Why? Because he taught as one having authority. That's Matthew 7, 29. And it's not just what he said, it's the things he did. He healed a paralytic so that he could immediately jump up and walk, Matthew 9. He opened the eyes of a blind man, Mark 8. Sign after sign, miracle after miracle, and people said, and I quote, John seven thirty one: when the Christ does appear, will he do more signs than this man? The way Jesus was, what he said, what he did, how he carried himself, People couldn't deny it. They wanted to believe that maybe this man was the Christ. They were sold. And Jesus didn't shy away from making these bold statements about himself. He brazenly called God his own father by implication, making himself out to be the very son of God. And it was so scandalous that some desired to kill him, but they weren't able to. That only added to his mystique. He said to a group of Jewish people who called Abraham the father of their religion, he said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, what does that mean? Well, it was shocking to them in two ways. First, Abraham had died centuries ago, and this man was only 30 years old or so. He was younger than me. But second, when God revealed who he was to Moses all those years back, he said, who am I? I am who I am. For Jesus to say, I am, meant that he was identifying, identifying himself with Yahweh, the true God of heaven and earth. It was blasphemy, unless it was true. And then Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, Matthew 21, in fulfillment of the scriptures. The crowds loved him. They were shouting Hosanna. They were laying palm branches at his feet, singing his praises. And all his followers, and he had a lot of followers, all his followers seemed ready to bow down before him, to make him king right then and there. And Jesus had never been so popular. Jesus had never seemed so legitimate. Jesus had never been so easy to believe. And then just a few short days after this, Jesus was dead. Some people can be so convincing. They can look the part, they can talk the talk, they can make us believe. But then there always comes a point where the reality of the situation becomes impossible to ignore. This isn't how it should be with a true prophet from God. And more than a prophet, the man who spoke like he spoke, did what he did. The man Peter called the Christ, the son of the living God. This isn't how it should be, correct? He wouldn't be arrested and tried and found guilty and delivered up and mocked and beaten and scourged and crucified and then buried in a tomb for everybody to see, would he? If he was the real deal, would this have happened? And Jesus wouldn't lose if he was really the Christ, if he was who we all thought he was, right? And on that Sabbath, after the day Jesus died, his followers, stunned from the events they had just witnessed, were faced with this single question. 
do we have to open our eyes to the facts that are right in front of our face? Do we have to admit that maybe, maybe we were fooled? That maybe we were wrong about all these years and all these things that we gave up for this man named Jesus of Nazareth. And this is where we pick up the story in Luke 24. Now, if you're a Christian here, okay, you've heard all of this before. You understand that, of course, Jesus had to die. The cross is at the center of our faith. We know that Jesus was born to die as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the perfect sacrifice for all of our failings. However, we also have to understand this, that when Jesus died, the way that he died, literally all of his followers, top to bottom, thought that it was over, that their hopes had been maybe tragically misplaced. See, none of them were prepared for what was about to happen. Let's get into it. Luke 24. We'll look at this text in three parts, three acts. Okay, first, the despair. First, the despair. See, guys, rightly understand that while the cross is at the center of our faith, the resurrection of Jesus is actually what makes Christianity what it is. Okay, the despair. And this first point, this first section is really about the gravity of the situation. Look at verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. Now, you might know this quote, but Yogi Berra famously once said, it ain't over till it's over, right? You got to play to the last second. However, at this point in the story, you have to understand that it was over. That's what Luke is telling us. He's showing us that for his followers, for his most devoted disciples, they had thrown in the towel. It had been more than 24 hours since Jesus had passed. If you look back a few verses to Luke 23, 46, Jesus had said, calling out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. They had seen these things. People had witnessed his lifeless body suspended on the cross. A soldier had speared his side and blood and water had come out. The blood had separated. It showed that his heart no longer beat in his chest. Jesus was really gone. And now some of these followers, some women, we find out, some of his most devoted um, followers, including his own mother, were heading to his tomb. And this shows us that for them, they had accepted that it really was over. You don't bring spices to anoint a person who's still alive. The spices, the burial spices they were bringing were for a corpse, for the smell, for the decay. It was over. And we have to understand this. Sometimes we just want to rush beyond this. And of course, Jesus is alive. Let's celebrate that. But we have to understand, we need to sit with this for a moment. Jesus's followers across the board, their hopes which were as high as they had ever been just a few days before this, were completely dashed. They looked upon the cross not as something to celebrate or to exalt, not as a symbol of a new religion, but instead with despair. Now, I call this point the despair because, technically speaking, that's what we see. The definition of despair is the complete loss or absence of hope. We don't see a single person saying, don't worry, guys, Jesus is coming back. Not one. Complete loss or absence of hope. Search the scriptures 
Jesus' 12 disciples, his mother, people who had experienced his miracles, all of them, they were in shell shock. There was no hope of resurrection, none, because they felt like death was final. Sure, if there's time on the clock, you can always come back, but the time, again, had run out. Now, I use this metaphor. I think it's a good one to help us to understand. It's not as serious. But let me tell you, one time I went to a Clipper game. I know, it's not exactly the most glamorous thing, but, you know, I'm a pastor, so you can't afford the Laker games. Um, But one of my friends, one of Christine's friends, actually was a season ticket holder for some reason to the Clippers. So they had tickets for every game. And they were, weren't able to make a game, so they said, do you guys want to take two tickets and go watch the Clippers? And I said, sure. So we went. And the interesting thing about it, it's not like it was like the best seats of all time, but it was in the season ticket holder spot. And everyone around us was a season ticket holder. Everyone around us was a true fan. They had like nicknames for the players. They had a little community. They all knew each other. They saw each other like four times a week during the season. So we were kind of like interlopers. We didn't belong, especially because I kind of hate the Clippers, to be honest. Now, we watched the game, and I don't remember if they won. I'm not a fan at all. I don't even remember the game at all. But those people around me, I remember them because they lived and died with the Clippers. And I now understand better, uh, a lot better, why people on national TV cry when their team loses. I mean, you could see it even in those people who are fans of this terrible franchise. It's because they're truly invested. They put their time their money, right, season tickets, their energy, their emotions into this team. Their community is found at these games. And when their team loses, it's not just a game to them. It's devastating. Now, I'm not saying that this is good or anything like that. But here's the thing when it comes to Jesus' followers that sometimes I think we miss. They were really, really invested in all of this. And we see that most clearly and how despairing they were when they thought that it was over. Do you understand? Their despair, even if it hints at their lack of faith and understanding, their despair highlights how invested they were in this whole Jesus thing. Their despair highlights how invested they were in his claims, in his mission, and everything he was. When he died, it was like a part of them died too with it. Now I have a question for you. And this is a question we should ask ourselves every day, but especially now as we're talking about this. I have a question for you. Let me ask you personally, how invested are you in the whole Jesus thing? I mean, what would you say? How invested are you in this? And I mean that in the most general way, but how invested are you in the claims? I mean, do you really believe that he is God in the flesh, that he died for the sins of the world, that he is Lord of heaven and earth? How invested are you in his mission? Are you willing to drop everything to follow after him? How invested are you in everything that he said that he was? How much does this talk of Jesus' death and resurrection matter to you personally? Do you live or die with the factual truth that Jesus actually lived and actually died and actually rose again or didn't? Now, I'm not trying to accuse you of anything. I'm just trying to get you to think. Because when we look at the text, what we see are people who are so devastated. And it shows that they were so invested. There's no way around it. 
And when we read the Bible, we see the Bible talks about Jesus as if, if it's all true, that he is truly the most important person who has ever lived. You know, actually, C.S. Lewis, the famous atheist turned Christian author, you might know him, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, and he was famously friends with J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, and it was a whole thing about his conversion, Tolkien helped him, etc., that's for another time. But he once said, and he was an atheist before, but he once said, after he became a Christian, he said, quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something far worse. Look, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that door open to us, end quote. What Lewis is saying here is that Jesus said stuff. He said things about himself that if you actually listen to him, there are really only three options. Either this guy is crazy, either this guy is lying and he's some kind of crazy manipulator in an evil way, or he actually means what he says and he is the Lord. Regular people don't say that kind of stuff. It's a trilemma, Lewis said, a dilemma with three options and only three. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. That's how high the stakes are. So as we talk about Jesus today, just understand. Understand where the Bible's coming from. Understand where I'm coming from. Either forget Christianity completely, reject it as crazy or false, or fall on your face because it's either true or it's not. See, the women, they're shell-shocked. They're walking to his tomb because they believed that it was real. They didn't think he was crazy or lying. But now the reality of the situation is pressing in on them. What does this mean? Jesus is in the grave. We thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Look at verse 2. They show up at the tomb, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now, real quick, just so you can understand what's going on here. The tomb was more like a cave. Okay, That's more what it looked like. And to block off the entrance, what they did was they rolled a big stone in front of it. Okay, now part of this had to do with just concealing a dead body, keeping people away. Also, Jesus was high profile, so they wanted to make sure that people didn't break in and rob the grave or something like that. In fact, they actually set up some uh, Roman soldiers to guard the front entrance. So when the women show up, what they expected to see was a big stone and some Roman soldiers. They'd have to talk their way into saying, okay, look, we got some spices for the body. We were Jesus's friends. Mary was there. I'm Jesus's mother. We want to anoint the body. Can you please roll the stone away so that we can get in? And so they show up and everything's wide open. From other accounts of this event, we know that the guards were passed out. So something weird is going on. Look at verse 3. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So it's all open. They just walk in. They're like, okay, might as well just go in. And 
no one's there. The body's gone. So put yourself in their sandals for a moment. Pretend you don't know what's going on. What's the most plausible explanation? Someone took the body. I mean, you know he was dead, so someone took the body. You don't just assume that someone came back to life. This doesn't just happen. That's why they are, as verse 4 says, perplexed. They don't say, he's back. Just what I thought. They don't know what to make of it. However, notice the detail in verse 3. And then we'll move on to the second point. What does Luke say? What does the narrator of the story say? What does he call Jesus? But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Lord. Luke is telling us what he thinks about all of this, even here. Luke is telling us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what is factually true. That even though Jesus died, it's not over. That even though Jesus was killed in a brutal way, crucified, he didn't lose. Jesus isn't a fraud. And this leads to the second point, the design. The design. Which uh, This point teaches us that God's ways are higher than our ways. This was always the plan. Jesus actually had to die. Look at verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Okay, uh, spoiler alert, but these are angels, by the way. Luke is telling us how they appeared, how they came across. Later on in verse 23, there's clarity. There were angels. We're not going to talk about that anymore. Verse 5. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? That's the first thing that they hear. Why do you seek the living among the dead? This question is super interesting. This question points out that their entire framework of thinking is erroneous. You got to blow it up. It's not right. They saw Jesus die with their own eyes, but the angels are saying he's actually alive. Verse six, he is not here, but he has risen. And this is key. They go on to say, remember how he told you. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Zoom in on that one word, must. He must be killed, must be delivered, must on the third day rise. The word in Greek literally is translated, it is necessary. It had to happen. See, they thought because Jesus died, it was over. That's usually how it happens. As long as you have one last breath, you can fight. But Jesus had died. He was buried. But what the angels are saying is that, don't you remember? He said that this was all part of the plan. In fact, he had said this multiple times. Flip back with me to Luke 9. Luke chapter 9, just a few pages back. I want you to hear Jesus' words yourself. Luke 9, 21. Luke 9, 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then after he cast out a demon that was tormenting this kid, when he seemed to be at the height of his powers, again, he talked about it. Skip down to verse 43, still in, the, uh, still in Luke 9. Luke 9, 43. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. 
But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Jesus said it. He said, let this sink in. It didn't sink in. Then flip to Luke 18. Skip ahead. Luke chapter 18. Look at verse 31. This was specifically to his inner circle, to the 12 men that he called to be his main disciples, to be apostles. Look at Luke 18, verse 31. And taking the 12, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Again, he said it plainly, but they didn't understand it. It didn't compute in their brains. And part of it was, if we're being kind of gracious with these guys, if we put ourselves in their shoes, how could they understand? How could they? I mean, they needed to see it with their own eyes. They needed to experience. Uh, Jesus didn't give them more explanation. I mean, at this point, you got to understand, he was so popular. He looked unstoppable. Whenever anyone tried to like, lay hands on him, he would just disappear. He could make things appear out of thin air. He could raise the dead. How could anyone touch this guy or stop him? How could this be the case? And this is why it broke his followers to see Jesus with a crown of thorns forced upon his head. How could this be? Uh, to see him struggle to carry the cross on his back to Golgotha, to hear him cry out these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How could Jesus say these things? But this all had to happen. And the question we need to answer is why? Why? Why, does this, why did it have to be this way? D.A. Carson, the Bible teacher and commentator, he once said, you got to think about it a different way. Okay, think about it this way. Imagine Jesus up on the cross, right? And things look bad. Okay, if Jesus is kind of pulling a rope-a-dope right here, now is the time to kind of turn the tides, right? People are mocking him. He's bleeding. He's struggling to breathe. He's hanging on the cross. It looks like, I mean, he's only got a few minutes left, and then people are straight on mocking him. They're saying, oh, yeah, he said he was the son of God. If he's really the son of God, come on down. Save yourself. You could save other people. You said that you were salvation. If you're really the saver, you save yourself. Prove it. D.A. Carson said, imagine Jesus said, all right, fine. And he lifted himself up off of the cross. And as he healed so many people before, he healed himself. He healed the wounds in his hands and in his feet. He healed the cuts on his head. And he just walked away. Would that have proved that he was the son of God? In a sense, yes, it would have, that he had that power. Was he innocent? Yes, he was. That would have proved it maybe in a sense. But Carson said that in this scenario, even though Jesus wins, even though he proves himself to be the son of God, in this scenario, the entire world, every single person in it who has ever lived would be damned to hell because Jesus needed to die in order to be the true savior. Jesus was sent to die in the first place. It was all part of God's gracious and merciful design to save sinners from their sin. 
the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But then verse 17, we don't often read the next verse, but this tells us why Jesus was even on earth in the first place. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It was a salvation mission. Jesus had to give his life as a sacrifice. There was no other way. Take a step back, okay? Christianity, think about what it is. It's a faith rooted in events. Sure, there is wisdom to it. There are moral teachings, etc. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But other religions teach moral platitudes, etc. I mean, that's fine, that's good, but that's not at the heart of Christianity. What makes Christianity different, what's at the heart of it, is the person of Jesus Christ. And as we've established by now, the crucified Christ. And the reason why Jesus had to die. The reason why our religion is cross-centered is because we need more than just moral teaching. We need more than just wisdom and advice. We need more than even learning about things. What we need is a savior, a sacrifice, because we're not perfect. See, we need help with our guilt for the bad things we have done. We need help with our mortality, the fact that we're going to die. We have real problems. So what did Jesus do? He came to take our place. Jesus died the death that we deserve for our sin. He he bore on his body our guilt and shame. He came to propitiate, uh, propitiate, that is redirect God's wrath for our sin upon himself. In essence, he drank the cup of hell so that all who would call upon him wouldn't have to. He came to be the savior And the only way to do this was to die. Now, let me ask you, and then we'll start to move on from this with the final point. But let me ask you, have you ever struggled with the weight of guilt? Is there anything in your life that has stuck with you? Could have been something you said years ago that you can't take back. Maybe it's something that you did that no one knows about but you. Maybe it's something that you've been. You just can't leave it behind. I mean, I think if we're honest, we've all struggled with something. I never met a person who wasn't a little bit weird, who thought that they were perfect. We know we're not. And then what about this? On top of that, have you ever feared death? I think most people don't want to even think about it. Because even thinking about it is too scary. It's too stressful. There's too much anxiety to it. But when you think about death, when you think about the end of your life, when you think about what comes after, are you afraid? Look, we can't avoid death. We can't undo the things that we've done. But there is a way, Christianity says, the word of God teaches the cross of Jesus Christ. Look to the cross. That's why Jesus came so that mortal sinners like me and you could be forgiven, freed, and graced with life eternal. But you still might be wondering, Jesse, how how do I know though? I mean, he died a long time ago. How do I know for sure? And what does this even have to do with the resurrection? People always talk about how Jesus died for my sins, but 
What about Jesus rising from the grave? Look back at the text again. Jesus didn't just talk about his death. He talked about his resurrection. Rising again was always part of the design too. Why? Because it proved that Jesus really was worthy to be the Savior. Let me explain. If Jesus just died, then how do we know he didn't just die like everyone else does? How do we know he was innocent? How do we know that he was perfect? Paul even said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus isn't raised, then it's right to despair. We shouldn't have hope because he's just a guy who died. Here's the thing. For Jesus to be the savior, he had to be perfect. He had to be innocent. He had to be God himself. If he had to pay the penalty for his own sins, follow along with me, then he wouldn't be able to pay for ours. Therefore, he had to be a blameless sacrifice, the spotless lamb of God. So put it together, Jesus inherently, he had to deserve not to die. That's why Paul says in Romans 4.25 that Jesus was raised for our justification. See, the fact that Jesus was risen from the dead, God raised him from the dead, proved that Jesus was truly the perfect sacrifice, that he was everything he said he was, and that he accomplished everything he said he accomplished. This is how it had to happen. He had to die for us, but he had to be raised because he didn't deserve to die. It proved that Jesus is the Lord of all. Now, let me tell you a story. Years ago, Eric and I um, were out evangelizing. It's not something that me and Eric actually have done that much together. Um, So maybe people, I don't know, we were showing up in pairs, so maybe they thought we were for a different religion or something. Um, But we were showing up, we were going door to door, and um, we showed up at this lady's house, and maybe Eric can correct me publicly, even if I tell the story a little wrong. I don't remember everything about it, but we showed up at this lady's house, and she was like already outside, or she was at the door already, or walking up, and she knew who we were. She kind of got the idea of why we were there, and she kind of preemptively said, look, you know, it's not a good time for us right now. Like, we're going through some stuff. I don't remember what she said, but something about, like, the hospital or someone's sick or, like, someone was dying. I don't know, something like that. She's like, we have serious stuff going on. I don't have time to talk about this stuff with you. So please leave. And we forced our way in there. No, we didn't. We didn't because we know that you can't force someone to believe, okay? We understand you. And legally, you shouldn't be forcing yourself your way into someone's house, you know? Like, hopefully, someone else will show up and share with them. But basically what I remember and why I share it is because of what she said. It always stuck with me because to her, it was clear. The stuff that we have to share about Jesus, it's not as important as these health issues or these medical emergencies or family stuff, as life and death, really. Can it wait was what she was communicating. But see, what she didn't get was, This is exactly why Jesus is so important. And you know, I'm not trying to place the blame on her. We should point the finger at ourselves. Do we get that? When push comes to shove, do we think that other things in life are more important than this? There's nothing more important than this. Either Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and we have hope in heaven. We have forgiveness of sins. We have eternal life. Or he's not and we have nothing. And this leads to the third point, the third and final point, the demand, which is about the response that Jesus demands. 
Luke, out of all the gospel writers, out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he takes pains to present to us a historical account of Jesus. Not saying the other ones aren't historical at all, but he writes it in a more historical way. And it makes sense. He was a doctor. He was someone educated kind of under the Greek system of education. But his intention is to give us the facts in order. And the way he presents it is really, you can take it or leave it. You can believe it or not. But he's not writing a myth or a fable or a legend. He's telling us about what he is saying is a historical event. So if it's true, it's the most important thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. And there are a lot of markers to its trueness. In fact, let me show you a couple. First, look at verse 10. Who are the original witnesses? Mary Magdalene, it says, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James. And there are a few other women there who aren't mentioned in this account. But Mary Magdalene, she was someone who was healed by Jesus in a sense. Jesus had cast out demons from her. Mary, the mother of James, that's a way of talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus. James was Jesus's brother or half-brother. Jesus was born of God and James was born of Joseph. Okay, I'm getting kind of sidetracked. You get the idea. It's Jesus's mom. Okay, this is the Virgin Mary that people talk about. She was a virgin when Jesus was conceived. Anyway, it's Mary, Jesus' mother. These two women, just by themselves, they're not really the first people you want to be the witnesses if you want to invent a new religion that's going to convince all these people, right? I mean, you have someone who people used to think was crazy because she was possessed by demons, and then you have Jesus' mom, and not exactly unbiased, And then to top it off, this was 2,000 years ago in a different culture, a culture in which women weren't even allowed to testify in court. And yet the gospel writers are unanimous that it was women who first learned about the risen Lord. You wouldn't talk about this if you were trying to invent a believable story, unless it was true. Second, look at the doubt. Look at verse 8. And they remembered his words. Okay, the women remember his words. And returning from the tomb... They told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Now as Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. Okay, the guys who started the religion, the guys who are leading the church in the early days, the apostles, at first they doubt and they don't believe. Even after everything Jesus said, Even after Jesus' own mom told them, they still didn't believe. Doesn't exactly give you a lot of confidence in these early Christian leaders, does it? Why talk about a story that's so hard to believe unless it's true? But see, here's the danger. There's a ton of historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. You can do your research. In fact, C.S. Lewis said that he was shocked to see how much historical evidence there was. And yet even for C.S. Lewis, he didn't believe right away. I'd encourage you to do the research. There's nothing more important than eternal salvation. You should spend a few minutes or a few hours looking into it. But that's not really the danger. The danger isn't that you look it up and find out that it's a fake. The danger is that we just walk away and not think about it at all. J.B. Phillips was a British Bible scholar who was born in the early 1900s. And this was really a time uh, when people, for the first time en masse, were rejecting the supernatural and religion, okay, because of the Enlightenment and stuff like that. Let me read to you something he said. 
He said, over the years, I have had hundreds of conversations with people, many of them of higher intellectual caliber than my own, who quite obviously had no idea of what Christianity is really about. I was in no case trying to catch them out. I was simply and gently trying to find out what they knew about the New Testament. My conclusion was that they knew virtually nothing. This I find pathetic and somewhat horrifying. It means that the most important event in human history is politely and quietly bypassed. For it is not as though the evidence had been examined and found unconvincing. It had simply never been examined. Look at verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Peter, he doubts. It seems like an idle tale, but what does he do? Even though he doesn't believe right away, he doubts. What does he do? He decides he's going to go check it out for himself. And so he runs there, and he sees the empty tomb, and then he wondered what happened. He doesn't let it go. And here's my exhortation for you today. Whether you've been a Christian for decades or whether you're just visiting for the first time, my exhortation is whatever you do, just don't let it go. Don't let it go. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. I believe that with my whole heart. The Bible says it. Don't let it go. The Apostle Paul said he appeared to more than 500 people who saw him with their own eyes. There was proof. Don't let it go. And the truth is, he is alive right now. You don't have to take my word for it. He is alive right now. And though he is not on earth bodily, though you can't just run to the tomb, and though you can't just feel the scar marks in his hands and feet, you can find him through faith. Jesus told Thomas, doubting Thomas, the most skeptical disciple, John 20, 29, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And there are way more than 500 There are people in this room, there are people all over the world from every tribe and nation and tongue who have met Christ, who know Jesus, who have accepted and believed and repented and turned to him, who know him by faith. Don't just examine the evidence. Ask for God to give you the faith to believe. See, the Bible makes the bold claim that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. Therefore, don't let it go. If you struggle with guilt, don't let it go. If you are scared of death, don't let it go. Find out if this really happened, because if it did, then you don't have to struggle anymore. C.S. Lewis also once said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, but if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So how will you respond? What do you think? Is he a liar, lunatic, or is he the Lord of all? We'll close here. We'll close here. For you Christians here, which is probably most of you, for you Christians who have probably already repented, who have already believed that Jesus Christ is truly Lord and Savior, the demand on your life is simple. Verse 8, and they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. If you understand what Jesus was saying, if you remember and believe, if you believe that he's alive, then act like it. Go and tell others. Go and tell them that Jesus 
is risen and that he has changed your life, go and share your testimony and go and share the gospel, the good news that death has been defeated, that sin has been atoned for, that eternal life has been won. And you know the thing, Anna Selvi, going back to this, to close the loop, she was a fake person who didn't exist and reality exposed her. And when she was exposed, Anna Selvi, the character, disappeared. All that was left was the brutal, sad reality of a broke German girl named Anna Sorokin. But see, with Jesus, it's completely different. See, when Jesus died, though his followers were faced with reality, though they doubted at first, he wasn't exposed as a fraud. No, because there was a greater reality. Rather, what Jesus was doing was he was fulfilling the design and plan of God. And when he rose from the dead, raised to indestructible life, as the scriptures say, he proved that he was everything he ever said he was, that God really did take on flesh and live among us, that he really does love us enough to die for us, that there is true hope. And you might know this, but Netflix made a show about Anna's life called Inventing Anna. I saw a headline for it, but you've read the text. Jesus' followers didn't invent the resurrection. At first, they didn't even believe in it. Rather, it's more the other way around. This event, the resurrection, is what started Christianity. This is where everything began, with the hope of new life, with the proof of real forgiveness. So friend, here today, today is the day of salvation. Will you believe in him who we tell you is alive, who is knowable even now? And brothers and sisters in Christ, today is a day of celebration as every day is. Will you go and proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins just as he told us to do? And will you rejoice and be glad in this day, this day where we have real hope? Jesus' death and resurrection is truly the most important event in history, an event that has transformed the world, shaped everything about this modern world as we know it, but will it shape you? I pray that it will. Let's bow together. Father, we know that faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. God, we know that it's not signs and wonders at the end of the day that give us faith. It's you alone, it's your word, it's your Holy Spirit that gives us that gift. Father, I pray for every single person here. I pray for myself. God, many of us believe, but will you help our unbelief? And God, I pray that you would help us to go on from hearing this to living like it's true. God, we praise you for your amazing plan to save sinners, undeserving sinners like us. We praise Jesus for all that he did and all that he is to us. And we pray, God, that as we leave this place, as we sing now, that our hearts would give him the honor and the majesty and the praise that he deserves. In Jesus' name, amen.